So this evening we're concluding uh, this year's series on repentance. We've been using Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, entitled Of Repentance Unto Life. We've been using that sort of to guide these little homilies. You can find that confession and that chapter in the back of the Trinity Hymnal. But let me just summarize to this point. What we've seen is that repentance is a gift. What the confession calls an evangelical grace, that is a gospel grace, a grace that flows out of the gospel. And thus it's to be preached by every minister of the gospel. You can't be a minister of the gospel and not preach repentance, right? And then we looked at a pretty robust definition of what repentance is, right? That it entails, repentance entails a sense of the filthiness and odiousness, the confession says, of our sins. It entails turning from them to God because we've apprehended, we've grasped, we've seen, we have a sight and sense of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And then we endeavor, having turned to God, to walk in new obedience. That's the gist, the anatomy of what repentance is. And then last week, we saw that we can in no way rest in our repentance as a work. That's what legalists do. Yet we also saw that it is utterly necessary if we are to be pardoned, right? No one is pardoned who does not repent. Repentance is necessary. And and to say otherwise, that's what the antinomians do, those who are lawless. So we can't rest in repentance, and yet repentance is utterly necessary for us. And so today, we'll look at the fourth paragraph, which is on the back of the bulletin. It's very short. You can find it there. It says, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Right, so here we're addressing the, 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 the gamut, the full range of sin, from sins described here as so small to other sins described as so great. So right at the outset, like we should notice this, right? We do believe that not all sin is equal. Some sins are smaller. Other sins are greater. Uh, Shorter catechism. Question 83 asks, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? And the answer is no, right? The answer is some sins are in themselves, and by reason of several aggravations, they are more heinous in the sight of God than other sins. Notice that carefully. In themselves, just in the nature of the case, some sins are worse than others. But also by the, what, they, what the confession calls the aggravations, meaning the consequences, the damage they do, some sins are greater than others. So there are small sins, and there are great sins, and of course there are sins in between. It's an order and proportion question to figure out which ones are the great ones, which ones are smaller, which ones might lie somewhere in between. And in this paragraph from the confession, we have some really hard news, difficult news, I would say, but it's followed by some very, very good news indeed. So we'll look at this first on this idea that there is no sin so small. There is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. Now, this... This may seem harsh to us, right? It certainly does to our natural fallen nature. It certainly would seem harsh to our unbelieving culture. 
every tiny sin deserves damnation? I mean, it can appear to make God seem petty. Is his honor that easily offended? Isn't it the honor of human beings to overlook transgressions? Doesn't love cover a multitude of sins? We have to cover a multitude of sins, but one tiny sin against God deserves damnation. So this follows, however, from a number of considerations and a number of texts of Scripture, frankly. So let's just kind of walk through this together. The first thing to say here is every sin is a violation of the moral law, of God's moral law, or the natural law for those who are without the law. And thus, every sin is contrary to God's infinitely holy, good, and just nature. What's missing, of course, in the assessment of our fallen humanity and of the culture around us here is some sense of the blazing, consuming holiness of God. You all know that great scene in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah, who's probably the noblest and among the holiest people in all of Israel, sees God in the temple, high and lifted up, and he's completely undone. He says, woe is me. He doesn't say, and Lord, I'm a noble prophet in Israel with many moral virtues. Look at how faithful I've been. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. To see the the holy God lifted up in his heavenly temple as Isaiah saw him is to be undone. It's to recognize that death threatens. Every sin is contrary to God's infinitely holy nature. And the more holy a person is, the more in tuned and sensitive they are to this reality. The reason this reality is distant and far from us is we do not know God this way. I mean, we might acknowledge that God is holy and all of that, but we don't have any palpable, you know, pulsating sense of it. There is in all sin an act then, and Isaiah catches this at that time, right? There is an act of cosmic treason, an offense against one of infinite dignity. There's something infinite in the debt incurred by sin, not because God is a peevish, schoolmarm moralist trying to slap people over the wrist with a ruler or because his dignity is easily offended, but because he is this blinding God who is light, who is holiness, who is just, who is being itself, who is infinitely pure and opposed to all evil. But we are perpetual factories of self-rationalization, right? And we're constantly in the minimization business. So there's something infinite in the debt incurred by sin. And in addition, we cannot in any way atone We can't make restitution for even small sins. If we were to attempt to atone, we would end up committing more sins. And we get, you know, express biblical support for this. It's there in the confession as uh, if you have a copy of the confession with the proof text, you'll see it. Romans 6.25, the wages of sin is death. That's a well-known text. Everybody knows it. Notice what it doesn't say. Right? It doesn't say the wages of really big sins is death. Rather, it teaches that the wage for all sin is death. And death means separation from God, from his life and light. 
And thus it means damnation. Now, I would also like to point out right here, whatever God does in response to sin, even if it might seem disproportionate to us, is just. Notice in this text, again, it's a very familiar text. Death is a wage. That is, it's the precise, fair, equitable, just response to sin, to all sin. So there's another consideration here, and it is that even as our Lord, even as God is one, so his law, right, his word, his commandments are one. Now this might not look like it bears down on our topic, but it does. So all of God's law has a profound unity about it. And as creatures, right, we are his creatures, we are bound to that law in its entirety. The law is a total all or nothing package. We can see this by looking at two texts. The first one's Galatians 3.10, which says this. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. So notice that. There's a principle in the moral law. And that moral law was reiterated in the law of Moses. And the principle says that God requires from his creatures perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience in word, thought, and deed. That's the requirement. That's what's entailed in the covenant with Adam. That's what's reiterated later in the Torah. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Right? And Paul's at great pains in the book of Galatians to say, look, if you want to embrace the law, you better be ready to embrace it all. Right? And this is why, by the way, after his first transgression, right, one transgression, Adam was judged and expelled from Eden. Even one breach, one minor breach from Jesus would have disqualified him from being the Lamb of God. The law is an all or nothing deal. Listen to this text from James chapter 2. It's not in the proof text, but it could very well have been used. James says this, for whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, is doing pretty good, right? He's keeping 99.999% of the law. But of course, James doesn't say that, right? Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. This is a remarkable, and I've always felt a very important text, because the law is a seamless whole. To break it at one point entails the guilt for all of it. Nobody believes this. Otherwise, we couldn't be walking around considering ourselves better than everybody else. So a sin may be small, but all sin involves, by implication, a violation of all the commandments. I can't fully unpack this here, but very briefly, let's consider the underlying connections between the commandments. So any sin, any sin involves wanting to displace God and put ourselves in his place, right? It involves a kind of deicide. That is, it involves idolatry. It breaks the first and second commandments. Any sin involves taking God's name lightly, 
So it breaks the third commandment. Any sin involves not consecrating our time to God, so it breaks the fourth commandment. Right? And we, we, we could go on, right? It involves an assault on your own life, so it breaks the sixth commandment. It involves coveting, so it breaks the ninth commandment. We could easily show that violating any one of the ten commandments entails violating all the others. There are no isolated sins that are not connected to a direct assault on the purity and holiness of God's godness. Thus, even small sins are included when in the Shorter Catechism, I alluded to Shorter Catechism 83 before, here's 84. What does every sin deserve? Small or great, what does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and in that which is to come. No sin is so small, but that it deserves damnation. And if you're not calibrated that way, you're not calibrated to the Christian view of ethics or to the Christian view of God or to the Christian view of sin. And certainly the, the cross will be, the cross might seem strange, right? This is why the world can't understand the cross. Or if they understand what we're claiming by the cross, they don't grasp it because they don't understand the God whose holiness stands behind the cross. So, these are our Lord's words from the gospel lesson. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. But don't worry about it. You're covered by my mercy and you're justified by free grace. Of course, Jesus never says these things. He just says, look, on the last day, you're going to give an account for every word. And we're like, all right. We're going to be fully judged then on the last day. Every single word, every careless word. And then Jesus goes on. Jesus presses the matter and says, by your words you will be justified. And by your words you'll be condemned. We will be our own witnesses on the last day against ourselves. Justification, condemnation on that last great day are bound up with really, really small things. Just careless little words. I mean, that's really hard news. It's really hard news. The good news here is in the second half of the paragraph. In the same way, there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. There is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. What wonderful news for sinners that is. Right? Sinners who often carry around some guilt or some fear about some big sin or sins which they are pretty sure that God won't really pardon. Nothing can damn those who truly repent. God always, always receives repentant sinners. And here... We should remember what we've already learned in this series, I think. Right? Repentance is a gospel grace. It's a gift of God. He grants you repentance. Now, he does that by quickening us, by regenerating us, by awakening us. And when he does that, he also grants the gift of faith. And all of that means that repenting by itself, you know, the repentance itself, regardless of the pain or the tears or the grief involved, repentance itself is a sign that we are the children of God. In fact, it's the initial sign. It's the entry sign. Repent and believe the gospel. Right? 
Unless you are born again from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So true repentance is found only among believers. As I said last week, there's no such thing as a repentant unbeliever. But there's also no such thing as an unrepentant believer. God never casts off, never casts off, much less deserts, much less damns his children, his repentant ones. Repentance is a gospel grace, and because it is, there is no sin, no sin so great that it can damn those who repent. You always have the medicine at hand in repentance for what you need. And that's because the grace of the gospel is greater than all our sin. See, the first half of this sermon, the first half of this paragraph in the confession, right? It has to be driven home to us how great and ugly and awful sin is. But the grace of God is infinitely greater than that. The mercy of God is infinitely greater than all our sin. So we have to consider not only the nature of repentance, but God tells us directly these kinds of things. Right? For example, he says to Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, Make yourselves, and wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So this is repentance, right? This is Israel being called by the prophet to repent. Fleshed out repentance, enacted repentance. And the result of this is in the next verse, where the prophet says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet. Again, scarlet is a stain, a serious stain. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they're a bleeding wound, they shall become like wool. The same prophet says in chapter 55, again, this is Isaiah, we heard it in our Old Testament lesson. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Let me just stop there. When Isaiah says something like this, you have to remember, when he says let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts, he has in mind great sinners, right? Because these kinds of First of all, Isaiah is sent to a nation, as are all the prophets, that's been sinning for decades and decades, and in some cases for centuries, right? That's been fornicating with other gods, that's involved in cult temple prostitution and all sorts of injustice, right? If you read the book of Isaiah, before you get to chapter 55, you realize he's not talking here about, you know, what we might consider a small matter. These are big sins, And yet, late in the game, God is often saying to Israel, forsake your way, return to me, and I'll have compassion on you. So it's just important to remember that instead of just pulling the verse out and using it in an isolated way. So God says, return. I may have compassion on you, and I will abundantly pardon. Now that is a wonderful pairing of words. God will abundantly pardon. Not barely pardon, not grudgingly pardon, but God like abundantly pardons. Yes, God is the righteous judge. His blazing holiness will consume us, but he is never more God-like than when he shows mercy. God delights 
to pardon freely and abundantly. There's sort of two poles here, right, that we should have in our mind, and we would like the world to hear them from us clearly, right? One is God is holy and sin is infinitely grotesque. They're going to think that that's strange, right? The other is the gospel is so scandalous and free, it sounds promiscuous. It sounds impossible. It sounds too good to be true. And these two things go together. God delights to pardon even the foulest of sins, even the most odious of sins, because he esteems his son's sacrifice. He waits on high to be compassionate to us. I always love the scene of that father and the prodigal son when that son comes back. And the father does not have a lecture ready for him, right? He's not, he's not scolding that kid. The Psalms testify to this reality, right? You, for example, here's Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. If he did, that would be dreadful. He does not deal with us that way. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. So you think, well, he must kind of deal with us according to our sins. There must be some relationship. No, as far as the east is from the west, as far as, as, far as the heavens are above the earth, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. There's no symmetry then. There's no sort of you know, proportion relationship, you know, between God's mercy and our sins. His mercy obliterates your sins. Think of Psalm 51. We sang it tonight, and we'll we'll recite it, Lord willing, in a few moments. But through the repentance expressed there, right, David is pardoned. And he's purged from the great sins of blood guilt, Murder and adultery. David is pardoned of murder and adultery, not to mention all the deceit and everything else. But of course you know this, right? Because the very gift of Jesus is given while we were still enemies, while we were weak, while we were helpless. It's given to the world in all of its darkness, in all of its rebellion, and it eloquently testifies to the fact that God does not merely pardon some sins, What would that say about Jesus' cross if God was like, yeah, that's kind of a big one. I don't know about that one. I mean, just think of the hubris that we have. We have hubris on the one side when we don't take our sins seriously. But we also have hubris on the other side where we're like, well, I don't know. I mean, my sins might give God's mercy a run for his money right here. No. Your sins are not going to give God's mercy a run for his money. Right. This is why, you know, you know, Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. The people who are, who are well don't need a physician. That's not why I came. And this is why, you know, the marginalized in Israel, tax collectors, tax collectors. You think you hate the IRS? You should understand how a first century Jew thought about people who worked for the Roman government and actually came around and collected taxes from you. And these people are clamming on to Jesus. Prostitutes, publicans, flocking to him. 
He didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance, all sinners of all kinds of sin to repentance. That's why he came. Right? I mean, there are some other implications of his coming, but that's the heart of why he came. Think of Paul's characterization of his own life. In, uh, in 1 Timothy 1, he says this, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, right, those would fall into the great sin category. But he says, I received mercy, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul, Paul's a living testimony to the truth of this paragraph in the confession. There are no sins so great that to a repentant sinner, God won't extend pardon. And then Paul gives this wonderful summary of the mission of Jesus, which springs out of the very heart of our Father, right on the very heart of God. Here it is. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. Well, that sounds a little like false humility, Paul. This is Paul at the end of his life, right? This is 1 Timothy 1. This is Paul in prison at the end of almost 30 years of apostolic labor, right? At the end of heroic labors, right? At the end of the whole mission to the Gentiles, at the end of his life, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. How's that for a deathbed confession? It's because he had a greater acute sense of who he was and who God was the more he grew in holiness. Christ came to save sinners, including great, great sinners like Paul, like us. In fact, Paul goes on in this passage to say that God's goodness is uniquely seen. It's uniquely on display in the pardon of, of the likes of Paul. He says, but I received mercy for this reason. So, all right, so why did God pardon Paul? That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to all those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is a monument to the patience and the kindness and the pardoning mercy of God. Sin is a serious matter. All sin, even the smallest, deserves damnation. And yet, there is no sin greater than God's love and mercy. There's no sin even comparable to it. No sin, no matter how great, can bring damnation on those who truly repent. It's news too good to be true, but it's true. And so we end this series with the, with the good news, with the simple truth that if we repentantly confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins. Right? The forgiveness of sins is the lifeblood of the church. It's the lifeblood of the Christian life. We need it every hour. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And thus, before the God whom Isaiah saw, there is now, not later, but now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen.